Welcome to the 386th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Dolly Jorgensen, environmental humanities scholar and author of Recovering Lost Species in the Modern Age, Histories of Longing and Belonging. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. This is a special COVID Calls at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 8th, 2021, there are 5,270,625 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Shelby County art teacher, Gold Coach, legacy lives on after COVID-19 death. This was written by Michael Collins and appears on the Who We Lost website, whowelost.org. And this is actually from the whowelostkentucky.org site. This appeared December 4th, 2021. Matt, Mr. C. Cockrell was not a typical high school teacher. It made sense that the halls around his class and the art wing of Martha Lane Collins High School weren't typical either. The walls are painted with student-designed work led by Cockrell for years before he passed away from a month-long battle with COVID-19 on September 19th, 2021. He just started taking his kids out to the hall and painting, current Martha Lane Collins principal Nate Jebson said. I don't think he had permission from the previous principal. Eventually, they got the right permission and just kept expanding and expanding. Cockrell and his students designed murals depicting abstract shapes, landscape scenes, original characters, and school insignia. He wanted his class to be unlike anything he had growing up, Jebson said. His classes were very much loud, a lot of people talking, but everyone is engaged in their work and he's just going around checking and coaching them through. His skills and teaching philosophy earned him the 2019 Secondary Level Art Educator of the Year Award from the Kentucky Art Education Association. That's a pretty big stinking deal, but he wasn't one to tout that unnecessarily, Jepson said. He was just always pushing the limits of what could be done in class. Cockrell organized an art show in February 2020 at Science Hill in Shelbyville, Kentucky, for students to showcase their art to the community. Gracie Scroggum, a 2021 high school graduate and former student of Cockrell, said the show was a fun opportunity to connect with her classmates and that Cockrell never made art feel like work. A lot of the time, some art teacher is just like, okay, trace your hand and paint it. 
but he actually had more in-depth assignments for us to do, and I really enjoyed that, Scroggum said. Cockrell often combined his love of national parks into assignments, allowing students to recreate pictures he had taken while visiting parks during summers. Scroggum painted several pieces based on Cockrell's pictures over the three years he taught her. I have a watercolor painting on the wall of my dorm from his class, Scroggum said. I put it up after I heard about him passing away because I enjoyed painting that picture so much. Pieces from Cockrell's class were highlighted by the National Parks Conservation Association in June 2019 for educating students about environmental protection through art. I loved being able to look through all those pictures and talk to him about national parks and stuff like that, Scroggum said. C wasn't Cockrell's only nickname. Coach C took over when he stepped onto the green to lead the Martha Lane Collins High School girls golf team. Riley Sutter, a 2019 high school graduate and former Lady Titan golfer, said Cockrell contributed greatly to her success through high school. He really boosted my spirits when I was down on the golf course or had a bad hole, Sutter said. Golf is so mental. You have to be in a happy mood all the time, and I think he really did that for all of his players in high school. Sutter said what stood out about Cockrell was his ability to stay happy even during difficult times. He was very happy all the time. I don't think I've ever seen Coach C really down, Sutter said. I think even when he had COVID, he was always happy and always looking out for others. Sutter said Cockrell was the kind of person who would want others to use his passing as a time of personal growth and remembrance. I would think he would want people to reflect and have a good mood, Sutter said. I look at his passing not as a good thing, but we can learn from his experiences and move forward. The headline was Shelby County Art Teacher Gold Coach Legacy Lives On After COVID-19 Death. You can find this and other similar obituaries on the whowelostkentucky.org website or the whowelost.org website. And my guest to talk about this project was in my previous episode of COVID Calls, episode number 385 with Martha Greenwald. Be sure to check that out. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation today. This is one I've really been looking forward to. With great excitement, let me introduce my guest, Dolly Jorgensen. Dolly Jorgensen is professor of history at the University of Stavanger, Norway, specializing in histories of environment and technology. Her current research agenda focuses on cultural histories of animal extinction, and she recently published Recovering Lost Species in the Modern Age, Histories of Longing and Belonging, which appeared with the MIT Press in 2019. She's also the co-editor-in-chief of the journal Environmental Humanities, and she co-directs the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities program area at the University of Stavanger and many other projects as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Dolly Jorgensen, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So I'd like to start the way I, I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the COVID situation looks like there. Absolutely. So I'm calling to you from Norway. I live in Stavanger, which is on the southwestern uh, side of Norway. 
Norway, just to give you a little bit of information as you think about COVID situation, we have a total population of about 5.4 million people in Norway. Um, and we've actually so far managed um, the outbreak very well. Um, our total number of deaths is just under 1,100 um, for the entire pandemic. Um, but at the moment, positive test rates have been going up um, in line with um, both Delta and then now Omicron. Uh, so, uh, whereas we were 5% positive at the beginning of October of people taking tests, you're up to 18% now, uh, much of that being driven by school kids. Um, so, that has become a problem um, in terms of schools not having enough teachers um, to teach uh, the kids because you end up in quarantine. Um, vaccinations are good here in Norway. Um, not great. I mean, we could be better. Um, but um, for 18 and older, 92% have one dose and 88% have two doses. Um, however, kids under 16 or 16, yeah, under 16 um, are only allowed to have one dose uh, right now, um, which as a parent is a bit concerning um, to me. Luckily, one of my children who's high risk has actually gotten a second dose, but that's unusual. Hmm. Um, yesterday, we just had new restrictions come into play because of Omicron, and that'll take effect tomorrow. Uh, so, um, limited number of guests in the home to 10, um, limited guests at official activities, um, 20 or 50, depending on like seat configurations, um, except children's activities. They're actually really trying to make sure that um, children's activities continue to happen. Although, as I just said, children are the ones that appear to be driving, you know, so uh, there's some political things going on there. Um, they, With the restrictions, they've also come a little harder on masks. Uh, that's not been a normal thing here in Norway. Um, and they've re-recommended work from home where possible. So we'll see how things go over the winter. Oh, thank you for that uh, overview. And... Um, in terms of your own teaching, I mean, were you all remote there most of last year or were you back in the classroom given the mm -hmm. relatively low infection rate compared to even compared to your neighboring countries? Absolutely. So we were back in the classroom. Um, we had gone into the, the real lockdown at the very beginning, right? March through May of 2020, schools were closed. Um, but actually, at the end of May, schools reopened. Um, the university went uh, to well, online teaching in, in that period. Um, but then we went back into the classroom. There's been some hybrid. So uh, particularly the large classes, so big lecture halls, were not allowed to seat the number of students that were normally seated. So many of them went to having either smaller groups and you had to do the lecture more than once or having um you know digital sends for the for the lectures um but i was actually teaching uh primarily smaller groups at the master's level so 20 students so my class was in person uh, just in a big room so the students were a bit spread out um that's that's basically how we've been doing things here and the philosophy of of keeping the younger children 
in school and prioritizing that over everything else. Is that an extension of a sort of educational philosophy in, in Norway that would prioritize that over, over other things? How do you account for that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's really been obvious uh, throughout that the priority has been to have kids in the classroom, to allow children's activities, um, so sports that were with kids, um, whereas sports that were with adults were canceled. Um, so other after school activities, you know, being in choir or dance or drama um, is allowed for kids and they've kept that throughout. Uh, so it has been an intentional decision um, to try and I think manage stress among uh, kids to, to keep life as well, normal as uh, possible in all of this. Uh, there were some restrictions that were put into place at different times, like how many kids you could invite over for your birthday party um, or restricting it to just your own class. So that came to be kind of the norm, uh, not not mixing uh, groups, but, but that's been the way they've approached it all along. It's quite impressive that um, that low number of of deaths. I mean, I'm here in South Korea where the number is under 4,000 for a country of 52 millions. It's impressive. And I know what they've had to do to make that, to make that work. Um, some of your not too far away neighbors there, uh, including Sweden and the UK and the Netherlands have not fared nearly so well. Has that created some kind of regional tensions in terms of uh, border policing or, you know, keeping track, I think, particularly early during Delta. I wonder, were there moments there when um, when Norway was keeping its borders a little bit more tightly controlled, or did that never play? Yeah, I mean, Norway did shut its borders in January. Um, luckily, we'd just gotten in a couple of uh, researchers that were starting um, postdocs um, from elsewhere, so we were very glad that we yeah, actually got You used your country. political influence there, didn't you, Dolly? Yeah, well, so so it did shut down. Um, and then right at summertime, it opened back up for those people who had uh, been fully vaccinated um, and had EU documentation for it. That's actually where it still stands now. Um, so it, it's somewhat problematic, particularly in the academic sector, where we collaborate with people from across the world, that if you don't have an EU-compatible um, COVID certificate showing your vaccination, you're technically not allowed in the country. So uh, it does create this kind of regional bubble mm. um, and make it quite difficult to bring people from elsewhere. So we've had to, when, when we had a new hire in, in August, um, we actually had to work really hard to get special permission um, to bring her in from the US um, because of these restrictions. It you know, at the same time, because we allow anybody who has the EU compatible certificate um, to come in, then it doesn't matter that they come from the UK, where there's really high incidence right. of, of COVID. Um, they're still uh, allowed to come in. Mm. Um, you know, but at the same time, we have looked at our neighbors a, li a little, you know, um, wondering what they were doing. Uh, particularly Sweden, right. which we would have thought would have ended up the same, and yet they have 10 times the rate of uh, Norway. 
So um, thanks for tolerating all these questions about Norway. You're my first guest I've had on in, in yeah. 386 episodes from Norway. So I really appreciate getting this information. Let me ask you um, if you could share a memory of this time, something that really stands in your memory as, as what this COVID period has been like for you. Can you pull out a, a moment that might represent? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, well, I, I think what kind of sticks with me is not a specific one individual moment, but actually the fact that we started going on um, more regular walks as mm. a family um, because, yeah, I, I, you know, to get outside, um, because we were doing home office because the kids, uh, weren't going to school at the very beginning. Um, I mean, they were online, but, but they weren't going. Um, and so we started doing walks and that was really, I think, a great way to, get outside to, you know, be in nature to, you know, improve your health, um, and to just be together uh, in a different uh, way. So it, it, it struck me that we did that under COVID. Mm. Um, I guess the other thing and that kind of relates to my work in animals is that we were home because we were working from home at a time when my oldest dog uh, got ill and or declined uh, such that we were home with him for three months and then mm. had to put him down. Um, and that was actually really special um, to get to be with him every day and not just leave to go to work and then come right. home and see him in the evening. Right. Uh, thank you for sharing both of those. And, and I'm sorry about your dog. And, and, and that's really... So what an interesting insight to have had that that time, because really with, uh, I mean, I think a lot of us have this with our families in general and with pets, you get a little burst of time in the morning and burst of time in the evening. And during the day, you're sort of wondering what everybody's doing. Um, right. But, um, so exactly. So that was that was a yeah, that was really nice. And of course, mm -hmm. with with COVID, what you see with um, with pets is that there was a huge kind of pet boom. Uh, of people buying new dogs and even chickens. Um, and, and a lot of that had to do with, well, being with somebody um, and having somebody to look after and look after you. Um, you know, as much as we take care of our pets, our pets take care of us, um, especially mentally. Um, so, yeah, so I think a lot of people were feeling that way uh, with COVID. So were you tracking that from pretty early on? I mean, I remember stories, different kinds of stories. Um, some of them were were kind of rough stories about like the lockdown in Wuhan and people abandoning, like trying to get out of the city ahead of the of the pandemic. Maybe those stories were sensationalized. I haven't seen much follow up reporting, but you know, abandoned pets when people left home. But then the follow up coming early in the pandemic of people either reconnecting with pets, as you described or um, uh, welcoming new pets into their households. Are you tracking that? And if you were, how, how do you keep up with stories like that? Well, I was paying attention to those kind of stories. I mean, one of the things that um, interested me was when Italy uh, went into their full lockdown. Um, so in late February, um, 
and and in 2020 um and and basically told people you couldn't go anywhere except to the grocery store right or to the pharmacy or the hospital those are the only places you were allowed to go you had you had to stay in your house um but an exception was made um specifically for walking your dog so that was that was the thing you could do was to was to walk a pet um and so that that struck me as how integrated then our our pet culture is into you know how we understand our lives um so here were all these restrictions but realizing that well but this is necessary it was a necessary thing for the dogs to be able to go out um and have their and have their walk just as you know people need to go out because um Often with the restrictions, then you you said, oh, well, you could go for a walk of so far away from your your house. Um, and and so that was when I got kind of really interested in in thinking about um, that human animal relationship under COVID actually was one of the earliest things that that um, caught my attention was how that was allowed when other things were not allowed. I wonder where do you think that's that springs from is it a i mean it seems totally sensible and from like an emergency management point of view you would think it's also like how you might help people maintain positive mental health in the middle of a disaster it's also maybe kind of a policing issue like maybe that's the kind of rule people are just not going to follow if you say you can't be out with your with your animals i i, I wonder about that yeah i mean one thing that happened was some people started walking weird things, things that shouldn't be walked because they were allowed to walk them. So, so you had a couple of stories that were like, Oh, I was out walking my pet bird. And, and it's like, <laughs> your bird didn't need to go for a walk. Right. And somebody was walking their pet turtle, you know? Um, so, so it's funny how humans can abuse the rules. Um, but, but I think it comes from, I mean, you know, pets are integrated from particularly early modern period you have this development of household pets so of pets that live as companions rather than as working animals um and it, and in that they, they've become part of the family um in a year at least in europe uh culturally um in most of europe so that's that's where it springs from i think and and this thinking about animal welfare um which is a very strong current um in many countries here um in terms of you don't want them to be abused and so walking them is seen as part of a welfare requirement hmm. that's that's really fascinating and i, I know um, actually, one of the very first COVID calls I ever did was with um, sociologist Sarah DeYoung at the University of Delaware, and she's a specialist in um, in evacuation. And it's one of the major issues with emergency management planning of evacuation is that people are going to bring their animals to the shelter, and so if you don't plan for it, I mean, it's going to happen whether or not you want them to to do it. And of course, that means. Dogs are going to fight in the shelter, maybe, if you haven't made, there's a million things that go into that kind of planning. But I don't know how much planning had been done for the inverse, which was not an evacuation, but a lockdown. Do you, I mean, mm. do you have a sense that governments were, had any sort of guidance along these lines? I, actually, I don't. So, so um, 
I, I don't get a sense that they that they had planned for such a thing. Um, so it is interesting then to think about what they came up with as mm -hmm. as the things you could and and couldn't do, um, and that that was somehow on the list of the acceptable uh, things to do. So where that came from, I honestly don't know. Um, it would be an interesting project for somebody to look at and see. Was it a particular minister, um, you know, had had some animal welfare or they actually had a pet and they thought of this or, mm. you know, did it come from some group um, who pointed it out that, that this needed to happen? Because um, you're 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 right. Um, in fact, there's right now it, it just came out a couple of days ago, a big uh, hoopla in, in the UK about um, the Afghan uh, withdrawal and um, one of the people taking their dogs um, uh. with them in the withdrawal and whether or not that was an appropriate use of um, governmental resources right. to take the dogs over, I guess, over some a person. Um, right, right. The, um, so that's, maybe, so we got the space of, of the household in terms of, of pets. Let's talk about the, some of the other spaces um, where we might be encountering animals and discussion of animals during the pandemic. So maybe um, zoos or other kinds of wildlife facilities where people go and, and experience wildlife, but not, not in the wild, but in the controlled setting. What happened Absol with zoos? <laughs> yeah, I mean, zoos have been a really interesting um, case because when you closed everything down, in March 2020, um, and they closed their doors, then um, there were no more visitors to zoos. So a lot of zoos actually came out pretty quickly and said, we have financial problems um, because we don't have any guests, any ticket income, and yet we need to be able to feed our animals. Our animals don't quit eating. And, and that's the major expense at a zoo is actually keeping animals fed. Um, so it was, uh, I remember that the, the Neumünster Zoo in Germany, the, uh, the director made a comment that said, well, if we have to stay closed for too long and the government doesn't give us support, we're going to have to start feeding the animals to each other. And people were just like outraged um, that one would say this. But, but at a certain point, you do actually, you, you, I mean, you would have to put, put them down. You'd have to kill them um, for animal welfare reasons if you, if you don't have any money. Uh, so... Some governments have given support then to zoos when they were closed as a kind of cultural institutions. Um, so there was that. And, and when they were closed, then some zoos uh, came up with some interesting things. But the, my parents live in San Antonio, Texas, um, and their zoo had a drive through. Uh, so you would take your car and drive on the sidewalks and, and see the animals. Uh, my favorite, though, was the Sumida Aquarium um, in Japan, who um, were worried that, or supposedly, uh, that were worried that the some little eels that they have, so these are little eels that stick out of the sand. You've maybe seen them at aquaria. Um, they stick their heads out, um, and so they kind of look like a little stick. Um, we're getting afraid of people because they were not seeing people so usually there were lots of visitors at the aquarium or would pass by mm. and now when their keeper went in they would all disappear because mm. they got scared from people so they decided to have an online eel show festival 
Um, and they got people to call in um, in a Zoom call. Um, and they put monitors up around the um, tank of the eels so that the eels could see people coming. <laughs> and so millions of people called in. In this, um, in this eel show, uh, whether or not it really works, I don't know. You know, <laughs> could yeah. the eels even see the screen? I mean, one of my dogs couldn't can't <laughs> see the screen at all, so I don't know. But um, uh, but it was creative in any case, and uh, you know, if I ever go, I'd love to go to Sumida Aquarium just because of that and see their eels. Um, so so there were kind of the the visitor issues with mm. zoos um that were disrupted but the other thing that's happened is that it turns out that SARS-CoV-2 can infect lots of different animals right. and not just humans right so right. um just in November three snow leopards in Lincoln Nebraska died from covid um, the Singapore Zoo right now, a couple of days ago, uh, I saw an article that five of their lions are positive. The hippos at Antwerp Zoo in Belgium have COVID. Um, so some zoos have gotten, of course, I mean, there's one you, you need to take care of these animals. Some of them are symptomatic. Some are not. Hmm. I mean, obviously the three snow leopards, they actually, it, it appears cats. Can get COVID and and uh, have really negative versus the hippos. It sounds like they aren't too bad off. Um, kind of a cold, um, but some zoos have been giving vaccines now, particularly really? to their primates, because since primates humans being the same, um, they've been very afraid of gorillas. Uh, chimpanzees, orangutans getting uh, COVID and ending up with the same kind of um, disease as as humans would have the same kind of reactions. So um, that's that's kind of ongoing. Now, what this means, I mean, it's really interesting because I don't hmm. think it's clear these zoo animals where they're getting the COVID from. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Is it passage yeah, is it from, from humans to? Keepers? I didn't know it could jump species like that. Yeah. So is it from their keepers? Is it mm. from the public uh, just visiting? Um, is it on things that they somehow come in contact with? That mm. that has not been studied so far, at least as far as I know. Um, what, what it means, though, is that if COVID can jump to these species and be there, of course, it means it can jump back often. Um, right. So you're creating a permeable layer between humans and animals uh, with the disease. And in so doing, you can end up, of course, with different variants um, also that develop. This is what's concerning about a recent article. It's actually a preprint study, so it's not been vetted yet. Um, But there's a a preprint study, uh, Kuchipudi, is the last name at all, um, which found that one third of the white tailed deer in Ohio that they sampled were positive for SARS CoV 2. Now, what's worrying about that then is that hunters have regular contact with those white tailed deer as a 
prey that you hunt for pleasure. Um, and so if it's endemic, if it's become endemic in the deer population, then every fall when the hunters go out to hunt the white-tailed deer, right. they will be in contact with those animals. And in fact, they're in bodily contact with those animals, right? Because there's actually blood, there's actually organs right. that you're contacting, which is the perfect kind of, you know, situation to be passing things. Um, so, so the question, where did the white-tailed deer get it? Again, maybe they got it from hunters, but now will they be giving it back uh, to hunters? So this kind of wild populations, I mean, you know, if we think about the beginning of, of COVID, you know, all the speculations about which wild animal um, it had come from, you know, was it from bats? There, there were ideas it might be from pangolins. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the point is that obviously it does jump um, between species. It's not just a human thing. But it, and, it, yeah, the jumps and also the but what you're describing is a significantly complicates what has been I think too often kind of an exotic narrative. Also, that this is just something that happens only in China. It, it, it's a humans and bats or maybe humans and pangolins coming into contact and because of these practices of you know the wet markets and that kind of thing it's quite different when you describe hunters in ohio uh coming into contact with with white tailed deer um i don't know you know culturally it, you know what the broader impact of that might be but it's um it's something that's uh, pretty distressing to to think about, both at an epidemiological level and at, at a cultural level. I want there was something else I wanted to ask you before about the the animals in the zoos, particularly. What are the what are the ethics of that? I mean, what are the ethical? I mean, the ethical responsibility of of people to not kill animals is a pretty problematic area to start with. But in a zoo, you expect. I mean, it's a space where um, you expect. Uh, some pretty clear regulations and rules about care of the animals. So what are the ethical concerns about allowing humans in who might actually sicken the animals? Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, because I don't think that that has previously been talked about within the ethics, um, as far as, you know, keeping the animals safe, uh, from something a human might carry, um, to them. I mean, Yes, their their welfare and concern is there's there's a lot of regulations and standards. I mean, very specific things too. I mean, um, I was looking at something else for elephants. I mean, there's very specific regulations of how many hours an elephant can be at what temperature um, before they need to be you know warmed up because you can't have elephants be too cold. Um, and I mean, it's it's down to oh this temperature on the gauge for this many minutes um before you need to take it in and then it has to be in for so long so so animal welfare is a major issue of course how that animal welfare is thought about is a bit different across the um, the world even though there are international standards um so for example in the u.s um zoos regularly give um preventative medication for pregnancy to zoo animals so they keep them from breeding um except if they want them to breed 
so they take them off the medication if, if they want the animal to reproduce. Uh, whereas in Europe, in most cases, they do not do that uh, because it's seen, it's understood as part of the animal's being, their, their way of being to reproduce. Uh, so it would be a diminishment of their welfare to not allow them to mate and to then give birth. Um, and so it's actually a different philosophy in, in how you think about animal welfare. Um, so, but I haven't heard anything about this kind of disease control in terms of, you know, visitors in this case, um, or keepers that are somehow infecting these animals. And I think it's probably because, as I said, I don't know if they know where it's really coming from. Right. Um, and then one animal gets it, um, and then has passed it on, you know, from animal to animal to the others, uh, in all likelihood. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, but, but, of but when they do get something, so when they do get a disease, if it's a debilitating disease and it appears there's no, that they're suffering and that there's no cure for it, in general, you will kill the animal. That's considered standard welfare practice um, within zoos. Um, so the three snow leopards, I don't know, and I don't know if the zoo would say if, if they actually died, like, they were so they ill died. that they died or if they were uh, going to die right and right. they were put down i i'm not entirely sure it wouldn't surprise me if it was the latter um in that it's it would be considered bad welfare if you let the animals suffer for something that you can't uh cure Let me just uh, very quickly remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Dolly Jorgensen, uh, environmental humanities scholar and also the author of Recovering Lost Species in the Modern Age, Histories of Longing and Belonging. So I wanted to ask you about this this book, and um, we were chatting before we came on. Um, congrats on the book. I'm sorry for the timing of the book. Uh, and and I, I really want people to get this book and read this book and talk about this book. And I, I wanted to ask you too, how, how you see this work. Um, so you're tracking two things. I mean, you're tracking extinction, and but you're also tracking sort of like how humans react to species loss and extinction and the sort of emotional content of that too. So it's, it's a multiple sort of entwined histories here. And um, I wonder how you see this work now in light of COVID, because there's been, um, you know, a lot of, I think, rethinking and maybe time to think people, you know, really talking about you know, the concept of the anthropos and thinking about the Anthropocene and, um, you know, a, a, a global lockdown, you know, collective human behavior 
there's a, a lot of things that about the environment and thinking about the environment that people might have said was impossible before 2020, and now it's very much in discussion. And of course, one of those is extinction. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks COVID is going to, well, I don't, some might think this, uh, we don't <laughs> tend to think COVID is going to make human beings extinct, but early in the pandemic, it did conjure these sort of apocalyptic um, moments. And so I've been wondering, I've been wanting to ask you this, how you think about the book now in light of what we've been through. Yeah, thanks. Because um, the book looks at uh, these, as you said, you know, ways that people respond to when species have become either locally or even globally extinct and how they emotionally uh, connect with those animals um, and then work to bring them back and why they do that. And what I found is that it's because people have this sense that particular animals belong in particular places and that when they are gone or belong in their lives, in fact, and when they're gone, they long for them to come back. So there's this, this feeling of loss uh, and of wanting it back. And then you're motivated. You can turn that into different emotions as I look at in, in the book. So it can be that you're basically sad uh, about it. It can be that you feel guilty uh, for it. It can be that you're hopeful um, for a future. Um, and I think for me in the COVID situation, what's the lesson from the book is that emotions matter tremendously um, in what we do and how we choose to respond to particular kinds of loss. Um, so we could look at the, the, you know, losses of people in COVID and say, well, there are different emotional reactions to that that may lead to different choices, um, you know, different ways of responding, whether you're going to be um, melancholic about it or angry, right, will we'll lead you to a different place. Um, and so it's the same in... Um, my cases with loss of animals species um, is that you is that groups of people respond emotionally to that. It matters to them that that animal species is no longer there. They have an emotional connection. Um, and so I'm thinking about, for example, one of the things that happened with lockdown was that uh, temples in Southeast Asia that have animal species that live there. So there's a lot of monkey temples, for example. Um, so like temples in Thailand that have crab-eating macaques. Um, there's temples where you have uh, bird species, you know, just pigeons, um, dogs, um, rats that that are considered sacred in those temple spaces. And when all of a sudden people weren't there, those animals actually didn't have any of their regular food and gifts that were given. Um, and so local people though felt emotionally attached to those um, animals that were in those temples. So they kind of started underground and often at the beginning against regulations of you know restrictions of where you were supposed to go going to feed 
the animals um, that were in these temples. Wow. Um, because there's there's this feeling of, of of emotional connection and a fear of loss of those things. Hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, rethinking my book is, means that it's it's not just about conservation actions, which are the things I was looking at, but rather more generally about our relationships hmm. um, to nature and how we use our emotions to determine what we're going to do. And, and I guess one of my big messages in the book hmm. is that that's not illogical. That it, it's not to say, oh, well, you didn't use some science to right. determine what your reaction should be. You you were emotionally driven. And, and that's been thought of as somehow, well, that's not logical to do that. And I think it's precisely logical. It's logical as humans to be motivated by what we love or hate or miss or, you know. So, um that that's how i've been thinking about the book now it's, it's so interesting and i was thinking about this in in light of that um, nature piece uh the covid 19 lockdown allows researchers to quantify the effects of human activity on wildlife which came out in june of 2020 in which that term the anthropause was put into circulation and and all of these i mean i think of out of the uk the um the um self-isolation bird club and and these like people really and, and the, the sort of really interesting conversations, which at first they were like, there's more animals are returning. Animals are coming back into cities. And there's some, you know, film people had of certain animals right. appearing downtown. Absolutely. That's definitely that's definitely happening, I guess, to a certain degree. But the the inverse of that was people saying, no, the animals have been here. It's just you were at work. And and so it's and but what was really happening uh, and this is why I take your point about emotions, is that people were writing and talking a lot about how great it felt to hear a bird sing or to see an animal that they might have thought, they wouldn't even thought it was extinct or had just been depopulated from an area. They just didn't think about it. Exactly. Exactly. So I think what the, the whole anthropos idea, um, you know, I, I don't think it lasts, if you will. I think we had an immediate lockdown and uh, people were off the streets, people were in their homes, and yes, they were paying attention to different things. So that's why you get kind of this backyard bird mm -hmm. um, paying attention. You could hear birds singing in a different way because there weren't um, as much other noise. Uh, you know, car traffic uh, was down. But of course, it's all back now. So, so it was a very short pause <laughs> in, in that way. Um, I don't think it would have a long-term effect on the, you know, animal behaviors or animal populations. Um, but it did cause some people to at least notice that nature uh, was there around them. As you're saying, it's, it's not that it wasn't there. It's actually they just never bothered to notice that it was there um, and that these, that non-humans actually inhabit our cities um and we just don't pay attention to them um so yeah so from that perspective it's it's maybe good that some people started to pay attention uh started to notice them but we'll see how much of an effect that really has in the long term or is it just back to status quo and again the cars and again not noticing what's in yeah, your own backyard 
Right. And I guess that was my question. And I agree with you. I mean, the anthropos was not long enough probably to, to change, you know, species density in certain areas, but maybe it was long enough to change the way that humans think about non-human species. And that's sort of my question. I've been puzzling over this and trying to think of a historical, like, is there anything we can pull from history to help us with this, with this question? And, you know, thinking about, um, you know, war maybe as a time in which, um, you know, there's a just massive disruption to where species are. And then after war is over, there's a sort of some sort of period of renormalization and maybe people reconnect with seasonal patterns or, um, you know, migration of animals or whatever it may be. But I've, I've been sort of grasping for something. But I mean, given your research, I wonder if you've in, encountered this where there were other times historically where people sort of have written about, oh, we're, re we're connecting um, with the animals around us that we hadn't connected with before. I mean, not, not really. Mm. Um, but the one example that does come to mind is, well, thinking about how a crisis affects a particular animal population and then responding to that would be the European bison in that um, the last European bison that were free living had died during uh, World War One, And so it was seen as a kind of response uh, to that travesty um, to work to develop a breeding program um, for European bison because there were some in zoos, um, which they did. And um, now there are wild bison again, but they all come from these uh, zoo animals. Right. Um, but that was a case where, yeah, it was a disaster. It was a disaster for, for these animals. And then you kind of took the opportunity to bring them back um, from the brink. Uh, so, so that's a connection, if you will. But it wasn't a connection that like normal people made. It was a connection that, you know, some particular scientists and zoo directors and, and people like that were making. Um, because you're right. I mean, maybe war is the closest thing that one could think about. Um, you know, how do you, how would you respond in France, um, you know, after the destruction in World War II? So did people like say, oh, look, the animals are back. And, and I honestly don't know if that's been because um, there's been some books that deal specifically with war periods, but this kind of regular people's post traumatic uh, mm -hmm. um, experience um, and connection. I, I don't know of work that's done that. So just a quick reminder that I'm talking with Dolly Jorgensen today on COVID calls. And among the many things that she does, she also curates um, a web-based project called Remembering. Well, I think it's only web-based. I'm not sure. Remembering Extinction. Uh, and you can find this um, on her website. And I want to just read a couple of sentences from the description of this project. One of the things... By the way, um, Dolly Jorgensen is a great follow on Twitter. And one of the reasons is that you go to museums and then you 
write about what you see, <laughs> which yeah. has also been great during the pandemic. <laughs> so um, for those of us who have not been in too many museums, but here's from the description. You say greater input is urgently needed from arts and humanities to work alongside as well as to critically engage with the scientific discoveries and ethical imperatives of contemporary wildlife conservation studies. You go on, museums, art galleries, and other public spaces are primary sites of public engagement with conservation issues, including extinction, critical reflection on how they can be used to cultivate heritage thinking about non-human species is timely. And I wanted to ask you about this project. And, and so we've been talking mostly as sort of about academic projects now, but I think, you know, sort of public history, public science uh, institutions are ones that you also do a lot of work with and work about. So tell me more about this project. Yeah, so um, so it is actually a, a project that's beyond the web. Um, I had a postdoc um, and I have a PhD student um, who work on this with me. Um, and I have some collaborators uh, in the UK and in Poland that also had um, academics and, and postdocs and artists. Um, so we've been looking at, yeah, how museums tell stories of extinction, how might they tell stories of extinction, extinction that happened, extinction averted, um, and what, what communication modes, um, are best, uh, to, to talk about those things, including, um, the arts, as well as standard kind of natural history, um, discourses, uh, in museums. And, um, yeah, so I visit a lot of museums, uh, and, and I'm interested then in, in how extinct things are put on display, um, and what kinds of stories get put with those, uh, and how we talk about them, um, and how we might be able to make people think differently about extinction, um, you know, realize how present it is, uh, in the world right now, how present it is in their lives, um, because it becomes very abstract, right? What do I do about orangutans in Sumatra? Um, right. So, but tr but trying to make it more real, if you will, in these. Um, so one of the things that's actually COVID related uh, was I co-authored um, an article in the wake of the of the lockdown with the, my postdoc Verity Burke um, and Fenarna Yardensen. Um, who's also a scholar of environment and technology, uh, about museum responses to COVID, um, and the, the, um, ways in which museums were able to move into digital spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, and were they able to? I mean, you know, you had to be pretty nimble, uh, as an institution, and not all <laughs> were very nimble in, in that. Um, but a couple of interesting things uh, out of that uh, research were that um, you have opportunities to make online exhibits and engage people with uh, topics in different ways than you used to be able to. I mean, we have a lot of technology now, so people don't have to just go to museums in person in order to get this kind of environmental or nature theme that we were interested in. Um, and that people want to engage with uh, collections. So hmm. I did the work with um, looking at how museums like 
for example, the Getty Museum Challenge uh, brought people together very quickly to make comments and, and new versions of Getty artworks. Mm -hmm. um, and the ways in which people, thousands, hundreds of tens of thousands of people, if not even to 100,000 people, um, involved in producing um, copies of these works from things they had at home. So they're engaging with museum collections and making it their own. And to me, that's what was really important um, about the Black opera singer, uh, Peter Brathwaite, 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 yeah, um, who uh, was, I think, one of the, the most creative and, and leaders of this in taking artworks that um, right. had Black uh, subjects and then making it his own um today and reinterpreting it and so to me that's the kind of thing that we have an opportunity even with uh nature uh to also do to have people think about museum collections and specimens um in their own lives and how they interpret them um and digital means are are excellent to do that um because they can reach into your houses they can reach into the schools um, far away from where uh, the actual museums are. Yeah, I was so I was so happy to find this this article, um, museums at home, digital initiatives in response to COVID nineteen, and it's actually available open access. People can find it. Um, the journal is Norsk Museum Tidskrift, uh, yes. which I'm sure I'm not saying correctly, but I'm trying. No, that was uh, good. <laughs> Um, um, and you can find it. I put the title up here, Museums at Home. And as you mentioned, it's co-authored by yourself, Verity Burke. And I'm really glad to hear your name check, uh, Finarga Jorgensen. So, um, and, um, but this project, I mean, you point out in the, in the article, so you kind of go through different kinds of ways that museums are coping with the, all the sudden, this is, we were talking about zoos, everybody's at home. And so there's, it falls into a few different categories. One is um, maybe the one you would think of first, the virtual museum tour. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to walk you around the museum. And I think those already sort of existed to a certain degree, very various levels of um, sophistication, but then also sort of live museum events. So still having events at museums just without people. So you can watch something that's happening in the space. But the other one, which you were just alluding to, is this like crowdsourcing the content? Uh, and so that's happening in conjunction with the Black Lives Matter movement. And to me, I think, so those two in the United States, but not only in the United States, obviously, become indistinguishable as moments of reckoning. And I've been fascinated to see how museums are trying to grapple with that. And, and let's layer onto that this issue of um, you know, as you were talking about extinction, or climate change, Anthropocene, whatever you want to call it, the broader environmental context in which the global pandemic like this is possible. So the three of those together, it's a lot to take on for any museum. But I've been very impressed by the kinds of things I've been I've seen museums try to do in this moment. Yeah, I, I, I am as well. I think there's a number of them that are doing collections, um, you know, collection drives, having um, 
So, for example, here uh, in the lockdown period, we had um, a kind of a movement, so it's all going to be okay, if you will, as as the saying. And, um, you know, kids made little signs and and flags and things to hang in their in their windows. Um, You know, so there have been some kind of collection drives for those kind of um, artifacts in different countries in different contexts um and and uh yeah that then trying to create communities uh in spite of not being open because particularly museums run on a very tight budget generally sure. um so they actually need the the um visitor numbers both direct income from ticket sales but also to show why they're valuable and why the state should support them mm-hmm. as institutions. Um, and so it's been very challenging for them. So they've, in, in trying to do things like online communities and online events, um, and I've, I've been active in several of them. Uh, we mentioned an article about the Silver Linings book that we uh, wrote as part of a, an exhibition on um, clouds in art and science. Um, and that had to go digital. Um, there was a, another event I was involved in that was on oil, um, that was in connection with an art exhibit, um, that was a hybrid event. So there were a few people in, in the room. Um, but most of the people were not, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they called in from all over the world. So I think museums are, are trying to make that kind of move. And really, um, yeah, stretch out um, the audience and and participation. Um, So the the one event in the oil um, case had people from all over the world, uh, artists uh, presenting and talking Hmm. about their artworks. Hmm. One of the things you point out in the article um, is... I'm quoting here, visiting such a cross-section of museums, as we were talking about before, offers fresh insight into digital tourism mm-hmm. in the age of coronavirus. And and my question in, in reading that was, what what are the implications beyond? And and maybe tying it back to the, sort of the mainstream of your work too. If, you know, natural science museums, uh, natural history museums in the older sense, um, have been struggling, you know, I'm thinking of Philadelphia and the Academy of natural sciences there, sort of legendary institution, been there 200 years. And they've struggled, frankly, in the last 20 years um, to get people in the door. It's not what you would choose um, to lock down because of a pandemic, but I think it did force them, as you have discovered, into all kinds of new ways of trying to engage with audiences. Is that something that we can imagine going forward out of this time or do you think these museums are going to be uh, eager to get back to just doing the kind of bricks and mortar things they were doing no i i think they're really going to continue with the kind of um digital initiatives um digital digitizing collections making exhibitions that are online so even if you have a an in-person component making more robust online components um i mean people have had kind of online exhibits for a long time but but 
really um, making those much fuller experiences, I think is, is going to continue to happen. I think one of the things they realized is you can get to a much broader audience that's beyond your immediate uh, vicinity, right? Your, your immediate region uh, or immediate city by doing such things. Um, and so I see that, I mean, digitization was already on the way up. I think this only spurred it on as a, as a further movement within the museum sector. And so we'll see how it translates um, long-term in terms of exhibitions um, or access to materials. I mean, that continues to grow. Mm. Um, you know, lockdowns don't help uh, necessarily move it forward because as much as we think, oh, well, everything should be online, but if you're archivists and um, natural history biologists can't go in to see their specimens, because uh, they, they can't go into their office, then they can't digitize them either. Right. Um, so the, there is that problem of access. So, so they've ended up, I think, in many ways behind on their schedules that they should have been uh, digitizing simply because of the disruptions right. of, of work. I mean, I know this happened to me. I was, I was trying to find um, some archival material about a Caribbean monk seal, which is an extinct species, um, and from the Smithsonian, and uh, because there's a there's a notebook there that had some photographs, and um, you know, in emailing the the archivist, they originally replied and said, "Well, we're closed. We, we I mean, we can't go in to get you the copy of this, you mm. know, page that you'd like to have." Uh, but we'll do it as soon as we can, um, right. you know, and so three or four weeks later, you know, then they're you able it. to actually go into the office and get it. And so it was great, you know, and I really appreciated it. But it does mean that, you know, you could see that they're also frustrated in their ability to get to the things that they have in their storerooms and in their archives um, because of restrictions, um, you know, right. due to COVID. Yeah, and, and the people I've talked to in the museum sector uh, they enjoy this kind of conversation, but they always bring me back to the point. They're like, yeah, we'd like to do all those things. And, but the problem is our budgets have been cut and we're worried that they won't be restored after the pandemic is over. So we have all this evidence that people want to engage with museums from their homes or from wherever they are. But will that be compelling enough to government funders and private foundations and um, everybody else who needs to pay to make these things happen? That's an open question, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. That this is the this is the issue. Is um, you worry that because they had fewer people coming in the door than the, they when they make their annual reports and say, oh, how did it go in twenty twenty one? And and there's you know a significant drop that then the funders will say, oh, well then you don't need money, um, and they're already on edge. Um, so. Let, let's hope that that people who are in those decision-making positions listen to conversations like this and say, oh, yeah, okay, people actually yeah. want to engage, um, you know, digitally with this material. They want to engage at a distance. We need to keep having activities, um, but those can be hybrid activities, for example, um, to open up the publics. But, right. yeah, it all comes down to money. 
So we're almost up on time in our conversation. I've actually been a little greedy with your time here today, but um, I figured I might be. Uh, I was so looking forward to talking about these issues with you. And um, just last question as we as we're closing out is is really you know what are you what's coming up next? I won't say when the pandemic is over because I'm not using that kind of framing anymore. But um, what's your next book project, Holly? Well, I'm currently working on a book about this extinction in museums. Um, I was lucky enough uh, to get to do two trips uh, this fall, um, one in which I went to Poland and the Netherlands, and one uh, that I went to Boston and New York um, for the book uh, to be able to see some more museum exhibits. I still have a list of things because, of course, I couldn't do anything in in 2020 and the yeah two-thirds of of 2021 um so i have a list of places to go see so i'm hoping you know one never knows you can't make um make plans very early for uh for travel um but so that's the the um the plan is to finish this book on um extinction in museums which is currently titled ghosts behind glass hmm. Um, encountering extinction in museums and um, finish that up. Uh, and then my next project, which has actually just begun, um, and I'll be hiring a couple postdocs and a PhD student on, is called Histories of Animals, Technological Infrastructure, and the Making of More Than Human Homes. And that is about how animals inhabit infrastructure uh, that humans build. Um, and whether that's intentional or not intentional, um, and how we respond to that. So this COVID, uh, interest, I think will continue on in, in that project and thinking about how animals live around us. Um, and either we want them or we don't. Uh, I know at least one graduate student here at KAIST who I'm going to want to as immediately as soon as possible uh, send up your way to spend some time with you and learn more about this this project. It's um, this more than human um, research in the context of the Anthropocene is really catching right now. And I think with the with COVID, for the many reasons we talked about, the anthropos and then the inverse of that, the sort of discovery of species, um, is is an interesting sort of set of questions alongside what the Anthropocene portends, which is human domination to the to the detriment of the other species that um, you know we we live with and among. So I can't wait to hear more about that project. Um, and good luck with it. And I, I, as I said earlier, following you on Twitter, I think I was following your trip to Poland because I think you were posting um, pictures from yes. museum visits there. So right, exactly. <laughs> so okay, well. Um, I just want to remind everybody, you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Today is, a, uh, for me, it's been a two-a-day two COVID calls day starting this morning, and, and this one, special one at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. And I want to thank my guest, Ollie Jorgensen, who is the author most recently of Recovering Lost Species in the Modern Age, Histories of Longing and Belonging. Dolly, thanks for your time and, and um, for this great conversation. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.